Ladies and gentlemen, this next edition of the Open Guard Cast is brought to you once again by the thickest man in jiu-jitsu, Electrum Performance. Open Guard Cast 25 is our discount code. If you want to get mean, if you want to get ripped, if you want to look like a Greek god and or goddess, then you can use our discount code and you can get their programs for less money. And it would be more uh, efficient for you to get your gains. That was a horrible introduction, but I am joined always by Danny <laughs> O'Donnell, my esteemed co-host and newly promoted black belt congratulations thank you how are you today great how are you guys i am i'm good i'm trying to get better at that intro but i didn't do a very good job that time 10 out of 10 i started out good and then it dropped off it was like not having a lot of cardio for a high intensity you always got to say it was great all right, you know what? <laughs> you gotta believe this it. This is a good start. This is a good start. Never have I had a guest hype me up. I'm happy. All right. I'm, well, I'm one. I'll hype you guys up all the way. Well, that, that's our job. We'll, we'll do it first, <laughs> and, and then we'll let you go. But, uh, yes, we're joined by Vanessa Griffin, um, head kids instructor at Crazy88. And uh, I just want to get this out of the way. I respect kids instructors so much. I, I also teach my kids program at uh, Matacaba BJJ here in Arizona. And it is one of the toughest jobs. And I, I make the joke on this show all the time that kids drive me crazy. Uh, but, I man, it's a, it's a really rewarding job. Do you enjoy teaching kids? I definitely do. It's uh yeah, I would say I always talk to people about it and I say, I mean, as stressful as it can be, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. I feel like one of the things about, and maybe Danny can relate to this too, is I'm, I have to let myself not be a perfectionist. Do you feel like your time coaching has helped you as a competitor? For sure. Cause, um, I knew I started to get to a more of a higher level when I was literally, I would teach techniques and I would think of a detail on the spot and teach it. And then I would go later in the room and be like, oh, this does actually work. It's, mm-hmm. it's really crazy how, you know, you have to, and it's, it makes it easier because um, our philosophy is that if you want to learn something, you have to learn it and then be able to explain it to a 10 year old. So if you really want to understand positions like my knee cut, um, I learned how to teach that to kids that are even, I can get five year olds to do the, my knee cut pretty well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely helped. Like you have to know details and you have to teach it right if you want them to succeed. And then I'll tell the kids straight up. I was like, I tried this last night. It works. Let's do it. <laughs> That's really cool. I feel like, you know what? And that, that, that is something that I just realized just kind of hearing you speak. It's interesting how you can, cause in your head, you're like, I make a grip here. I straighten my arm. I make a grip on the collar, but to them, you can just explain it in a very simple way. And that might even help your understanding. I feel like I've done that too. There's like, cause knee cutting is a weird concept. Uh, I feel like for young kids, like like the eight, ten year old range. But mm-hmm. if you're able to explain it like I'm leaning on them or I'm trying to touch my knee to the mat, like the simplest version of the move that you might understand it in a more complex way. But if you're able to explain it in, quote, I don't want to say dumb it down, but like make it easier for a younger person to understand, that probably helps you, too. That's yeah, very interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, kids aren't as, you know, adults will ask questions. Kids just don't ask questions like you can never do a Q&A with kids. So you don't have to explain to them why something works unless, you know, one of them does have um, the audacity to ask why. (laughs) (laughs) They don't they usually will not ask. So they'll just do what you tell them to do. And all you have to do is say this works. Try it. And you make it as simple for them, because um, I also differentiate the moves that, you know, I teach them a whole lot. But I tell them I expect you to be able to execute this. I don't expect you to be able to execute this. Like I teach them the Barambolo, but I don't particularly expect them to execute it just want them to understand it. And if they're exposed to it when they're younger, you know, like that's how I grew up. I started learning the Barambolo at like 13 and I'm actually just now starting to be able to hit it, but I've had that in my back pocket for a long time. So there's moves that sometimes you got to teach them things that um, they won't execute right away. But then there's some things that they like the arm bars, Kimuras, the chokes, the guard passes. There's certain ones that you need to be able to execute this now. And then there's ones that we're just showing them for, you know, conceptual reasons or something to have in their back pocket when they get older. All right. Yeah, that's very, it's very interesting. And I, I like how uh, you approach it as a coach. That's uh, for Birambolo too. Like Danny, let me ask you, uh, how long did it take you to learn the concept of the Birambolo? I mean, I would say I, similar to what Vanessa said, like I learned it kind of a while ago, but I still don't feel like I can do it proficiently. Like, I feel like what, like learning the concepts was really important and trying to understand how to defend it, but it was never something that I like actively worked on. So to say that, like, I know it would be a stretch for sure. You know, okay. The, what it's interesting. You said, I know it. My professor said, you don't know something unless you can do it in competition effectively. Like you can like be able to drill it, but to be able to do it on somebody who's resisting 
And in that environment, that's like knowing something. So Vanessa, you're the same age as I am, actually. And um, that's not a shot at you, Danny. That's just she's she's the same age. Yeah, as I'm old. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I've got to stop making the age jokes. Danny's going to beat me up. Um, <laughs> it took me a whole year to even be able to drill the Bidambolo because I learned it at 13 years old, four, 13 or 14 years old. I learned this technique and I hated it until I was about 18. And then I started doing it when I was purple belt. And now I'm starting to understand the actual concept of it. I think it's interesting how like big techniques like that, because I was a kid, I was basically in the kids class, just like you were 13, probably in the kids class, maybe starting to get into the adult class more because just getting better. And kid, some of the kids are, you know, you can beat up on them and it's good to get beat up by adults sometimes. But um, would you say that like how, how many of those techniques would you say you teach in the kids class? Because I try to keep it pretty fundamental and throw in like some spicy stuff like that every now and again is your kids class broken up into like an advanced and a beginner side yeah we have three tiers so we have our intro program which is just fundamentals and they'll actually do the grappling and the striking just to get introduced to it once they decide to upgrade um we actually have our head muay thai coach sebastian ramirez he teaches the friday muay thai for the ap kids um, which is what we call our advanced class. And then I broke it even further into we have intermediate at five o'clock and then advanced at six. Um, so we do that. So it's fundamentals and then intermediate is the very basics. They don't learn the bear and bowl. They're on the stuff that they need to execute, the knee cuts, the back takes, the arm bars, the kimuras, um, simple sweeps. And then the advanced program is a combination of that. And then some advanced techniques. Um, I Our guards are actually still pretty simple. We just do a lot of closed guard and a lot of delahiva. Um, we throw in the bear and bowl here and there, but um, we don't particularly do, we don't do everything. So we don't really do spider guard or lasso like that. Um, we only, like I said, I only teach the bear and bolo for the kids that can get it, but then mostly just so they understand it. And if you understand a position, you're more likely to be able to defend it. Um, so I try to keep, I mean, I'm a pretty simplistic fighter. I don't, I always joke that I have like three moves that I'm good at, but it's, it's kind of true because there's, there's only like a certain amount of things that I'm good at. I'm very like fundamental based, simple. If I do anything fancy, it's just because it's just like a transition that I need. But for the kids, I keep it pretty simple because you want them to be able to execute things. And then um, it makes it better if they have a, like a uh, I mean, I just view it how I came up in the kids program is I learned the basics and then I started to move up. I made my basics really good. And now I can start to add in complex things um, because, in my opinion, for kids, it's just like just teach them what they can understand. And you can do the fancy stuff later. They're going to they're going to perform better with the basic things that they can understand than trying to understand Barambolo and spider guard and you know advanced passing so and we we do have the three tiers but we still i even my advanced kids we still keep it pretty simple if i do do fancy moves it's still it's still simple stuff in general like easy to execute techniques i think it's really interesting what you said like basically how you started as a kid learning the basics and then you kind of layered in some of the more advanced stuff as you got older did that experience like in the kids program inform how you teach your kids? I mean, it's, it sounds like it did because it seems like you're taking a similar approach. Yeah, 100%. So when I started at 13, I did what we call our juniors class. And then I came up through the ranks. So I got yellow, orange, and green. And I actually didn't stop doing the kids classes till I got my green belt. And I was 15. So I was 15 years old in the green belt. I made my full transition into the adult program. Um, I was training in the adult classes probably about a year or so in. I would say it was about a year in. So I was 14, almost 15, uh, when I started doing the adult classes. And then at 15, when I got promoted to Greenbelt, I just went, made the full transition to the adult program. But even still, we don't do a whole lot. Back then, we didn't do a whole lot of fancy things. And if we did, it was more just conceptually. And then the people who can do it, they're the ones that they do it. So 100%, the way that I came up and um, how I feel like I came up and what was effective for me, I translate that to the kids program and they're having a lot of success with it so far. You know, we don't have any cheat codes where the kids learn Barambola before they can do a Kimura from the closed guard. You know, it's, we start where they're supposed to be, do the basics and then they can learn the fancy stuff later. So you're taking the anti-Musumeski approach. <laughs> um, I think, no, I think he, I mean, I feel like he did fundamentals more like when he was a kid and then I don't think he learned Barambola until later because he actually has a, a Everyone says that he doesn't know takedowns, but he has the whole highlight of takedowns that he did as a kid. You know, your your game changes yeah. when you get a little older. Crazy. So, I feel I still feel like the like the black belts today they they did I think they did their fundamentals first really and got those down before they started doing complex things. That was more of a joke. I, I meant like I, I saw I saw like a <laughs> hour I saw like three hours worth of film. I felt bad. I was like, man, I'm, 
getting kind of uh, i was like i should have explained that i was kidding but uh <laughs> no i saw like a th- like three hours worth of stuff of him literally just drilling different bird and bull variations take the back no wonder he can take everybody's back with bird and bull including you know giant people uh like was it sadiq yusuf is that the guy he fought at, um no, that's a MMA fighter. He that's fought somebody. That's our, that's our MMA fighter. He fought um the guy's no name was way. Yeah. Oh wow, that's so okay. That's really ironic that I just yeah. Sadiq's on um, he trains with Lloyd. He's a okay, he they train at Camp Springs. He's a TLI member. Okay, that's very ironic then that I that I messed up the name of um the big the giant man that was. Yeah, his name is Safe. I don't remember his last yes. name. Was, yes, yes. Safe or Safe. I don't know how you pronounce it. Yeah, S A I F. That was his name. Okay, yeah, but he my, he fought him, and um, Mikey takes the back really, really well. That was just meant to be a joke. I apologize for the extrusion. <laughs> Danny, <laughs> save me. So Jake uh, alluded to my age earlier, kind of made fun of me, but I think it's always really interesting <laughs> uh, talking to people who started jiu-jitsu when they were really young and kind of how that transition went from like going through all the kids' ranks and then moving into the adult ranks. Because you said you, you reached the rank of green belt. Which is, I think that's the highest kids belt you can reach. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that is. So did you feel like it was difficult to to go from competing as a kid and going through the ranks as a kid to moving into the blue belt adult ranks? Actually, no. The transition for me was fairly smooth. Um, I didn't compete. I competed a decent amount when I was younger. So I started. I think my first tournament was maybe five or five months in to training, and I I only had one match, but I won by Kimura. And then I kept training, and I remember, I remember specifically it bothered me because I would always get, we went to the Nagas, I would always, I would always get gold and silver. It took me forever to get double gold, um, but then once I got it, I was good. Then I started doing the teens divisions, had a little trouble, and then I started doing the adult divisions. Um, I would do the adult divisions. I didn't get to compete as a juvenile, so I was just doing the adult divisions at like Naga, Grapplers, Grapplers Quest, and um, Good Fight. And then the transition to IBJJF, the, my first season at Blue was actually extremely successful. I went, I think my record was like 27-2 and two or 25-2 and two or something like that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I double golded at three tournaments. I think I lost in New York in the quarterfinals, but then got gold at the Worlds, lost the first round in the Open to the same person. So my record was something like that. I think it was 27-2 and two for the whole year. So it actually, for me, wasn't super difficult. But I was already fighting adults for the maybe two to three years before then so you were fighting adults in those smaller tournaments and then so so you're pr- pretty much used to their strength and the way that the, the differences between the adults and the kids yeah, prior to competing really at the world interesting well i have a question so when i was coming up um from green belt to blue belt i struggled a lot as a kid actually i did not have a, a good kid's career at all i think i went to pan kids like two years in a row and got they got third both times, but it was because I had that little kids in my division. It's not because I like fought hard to get third. It's like I have this third place medal that I don't have anymore because I don't want it. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, I didn't want it. I would have kept it nowadays. But did, was there ever a tournament that you had coming up where you saw the results of like a period of intense improvement? Because let me let me uh, ask a question with an example. I felt like it was my it was a my first Naga as a blue belt. I fought a black belt that is from Arizona, Thomas Keenan, and I won. And I remember he is very, very talented. And he uh, beating him was like a huge marker of like, wow, I've improved so much. Did you have a tournament like that coming up that saw you like after that was a huge confidence boost? Or did you just kind of seem like it was pretty consistent improvement? I was about a mixture of both. It wasn't um, – I would say because my first adult tournament I went to in Naga. I think I lost my no-gi match by one point. It was like six to seven. And then I did the gi. I don't actually remember how I did in gi. I think I won. I won my gi division. I think I had two matches. Um, and so from there, I was like, oh, okay. This, I was super nervous because that was my first time competing as an adult. So I think, like, it wasn't, like, a big turning point for me, but it was, you know, I felt like I belonged. And then I think after that, I, I wasn't really losing too much in the adult divisions at Naga, maybe like one match here and there. So it was kind of, I think it was like consistent. And then that was a little bit of a point. And I was like, oh, okay. So there was a bit of a point. It wasn't like mind blowing to me, but it was, that's, that's something that I do remember. And I would say from then, I just didn't really have a whole lot of, um, whole lot of problems. And then we made our transition to IWGF when I was 17. And that was pretty smooth. That, I think that was more for me, the big tournament where I, I was super nervous and I was like, oh, okay, I belong, you know. I'm doing all right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 
So after you won the Worlds at Bluebell, I think something that, that a lot of competitors struggle with is like they have a lot of success early on. And then there's these expectations on them like, oh, you won Worlds at Blue. You have to win it at Purple, Brown, and Black and be this you know, this champion all the time. Did you feel like after you won it at Blue that there was like a lot of pressure on you to, to achieve more stuff in Jiu-Jitsu? No, not at all, actually. Um, I remember when I won that, my coach and I had a conversation where he didn't put any pressure, but he explained, he was like, you know, it's not over here. This isn't it. You know, we have to move on and do better things. But he never, he never set the goals um, for, for me. It was, he was never like, you need to do this and this and this. He was pretty lenient. He was like, just keep training. And then, you know, these are, you know, compare yourself to yourself in the past and just keep trying to improve. And I set my own goals where I wanted to win, but there wasn't a whole lot of pressure. There wasn't any like voices in my head, like, oh, you need to win. Um, Cause even my I won the Worlds at Blue, and then I had an okay season. The next at Purple, took third, and my coach was pretty satisfied. Everyone was pretty satisfied with it. We said that that's a pretty good benchmark. If you win Worlds the belt before and then you medal at the next belt, you know, it was pretty good. And then the next goal was to win. But, again, I didn't feel any pressure or any nervousness or anything like that. It was just always just keep training and, you know, do what you got to do. Yeah, now there is no next belt, right? So that's <laughs> the cool thing about Blackboard is you're that I'm forever. Yeah, this is this is the this is the one where, you know, you spend all this time worrying about what's happening at the next belt and now I don't have to. Like once I get to a high level here, you know, there's no next jump or anything. It's just stay stay on top as long as you can. All right. So let me ask you real quick. This is how this is a a, a question that was asked to me and I had my own answer. I want to hear yours. Uh you've been a black belt for one how how long? Uh like two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. <laughs> Did you immediately feel this sense of, okay, I'm a black belt now? Did you um, put any pressure on yourself to know more? Did you ever feel like mistakes that you made were like, oh, man, I'm a black belt. I shouldn't make these mistakes. Or did you feel like, okay, more more comfortable? Because let me just use another example. When I got my black belt, I was making mistakes. Uh, I was overthinking everything I was doing, and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm a black belt. I'm not going to – like I can't be making these kind of mistakes uh, on the mat, off the mat. Did you feel a sense of that, or do you feel pretty comfortable? I feel uh, – I actually feel extremely comfortable. I think – I made a joke when I uh, – I made a joke the other day to my teammates. I was like, training as a black belt is a new motivation. You know how people are like, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to go to practice. I'm like, I'm ready to go to practice every day because I get to flex with my black belt. And, <laughs> and, and it's different because now if I mess something up, it, in my head, I guess like in my head, I'm like, okay, I made it here. So now, you know, training in the room is like, there's, there's not a whole lot of pressure to mess up because, you know, maybe someone scores some points on you or they win a match on you. It doesn't matter. Like, you've reached the level that you need to. But I do think um, – I mean, I've already took the approach. Like, during quarantine, we were doing a lot of just drilling because I only had two people that I could train with. So it was a lot of just keep learning. And during my Black Belt speech, I made a comment saying – it was interesting. The morning drive to work, I was thinking of some of the positions that I wanted to work on and wanted to get better. And then I still had that same mentality that night or the next morning where I was like, oh, I still need to work on these positions. Like nothing has really changed besides now. I think it's a little more fun and I'm just excited for the next level. I'm mostly eager to see. I want to do my first tournament and see where I'm at and what I need to do to improve. But I don't like again, I don't feel a whole lot of pressure. I'm just super excited to be here. Um, but I know that, you know, it's still a whole new beginning of now I have to reach the level of this belt and. But there's no pressure. I don't think if I make a mistake that it's the end of the world because, I mean, I just got – once you get a black belt, you're not perfect. You know, I think I think people think that when they're coming up, and now that I'm here, I'm like, yeah, no one's perfect. You know, we always make the joke, too, the once you first get your black belt compared to, like, a fifth-degree black belt is so different, you know, that there's there's different levels to black belt. So um, it's, it's just been the same. I've been worried about, you know, keeping my conditioning up, eating right, you know, making sure that my technique is sharp and training with a purpose. So – Nothing's really changed besides training is actually a lot more fun now than I'm a black belt. Mm -hmm. You get to flex. That's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> I love is, that. I'm a flex now. Uh-huh. And the way till your belt gets frayed, too, that's like a whole other – like when you flex your frayed black belt, you're like <laughs> – new black belt, you're going to be like, hey, nice belt, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that's the joke now is the higher-up black belts are all making fun of us, of the new ones that got the black belt. So it's really funny, but it's all in good fun. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think another theme of when people get their black belt at first is that they kind of feel like they're not ready. Like they, you know, they think they have so much to improve on, like Jake alluded to. Did you feel like your brown belt season and everything you've done in the lower belts, did you feel like that prepares you adequately for black belt to be able to say, like, I deserve this belt. I'm ready to compete as a black belt. 
Um, I that's a, a that's kind of a difficult question to answer just because you know for I think for people who are their goals are belts is different, but for me the goal yeah. was never really the belt. The goal has always just been black world champion as many times as I can. So, um, I yeah I don't I don't. That's, that's, just, that's kind of a hard question to answer. That Which is like okay. that answered it. I just like for me, it's like I don't, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, that, like that, that makes kind of sense. Though, yeah. yeah, you're like I don't, I don't really care about the belt. That's not really the goal. The goal is just to keep improving, and you have like your ultimate goal that you're going to be striving towards no matter what belt you are, which is black yeah, belt world champion. I mean, in my opinion, you know, I've never underestimated underestimated anybody. So, like I said, I don't really know what level I'm at. So, I mean, I I would assume that I'm you know decent enough to survive for now but i guess you just never know like i'm just excited to get to my first tournament to see where i'm at and how i am because you never know i could go out there and get smacked or i could go out there and have a really good match or somewhere in between so i think i think i'm just waiting for the first tournament then i think i'd be able to answer that you know like was i prepared or you know am i ready for this but i think i am i think i'll be fine no matter what happens you know when i finally get a taste of what it's like okay so you kind of just segued into my next question which is beautiful um so you said you you're waiting for the next tournament. There, I know that it's it's it seems like it's mostly on the southwestern United States and maybe in Florida a little bit. But do you have any plans to potentially like we don't because we don't know when tournaments will come back, which sucks. Like yeah. as somebody who loves to compete too, man, it is rough not competing. But I have uh, personally been able to compete a little bit, just kind of over here, third coast grappling and Jits King. Uh, have you thought about like you know? messaging seth daniels or third coast or like seeing if you can get a super fight to maybe get your feet wet a little bit because then you have a little bit of rain to maybe go against some you know some high level competition right off the bat have you thought about that a little bit or are you pretty stuck on waiting for tournaments i did actually i applied for fight to win um but then seth reached out and it was a little too short notice for me to get out there um flights were a little bit high at the time and then i did apply for third coast in august i just waited to hear back from them and then I know one of the parents here at the gym was looking to get um, to see if there was any people that wanted to fight me in like an AGF or something. But at this point, I'm just I I made the joke the other day where I said, um, looks like it's supposed to be grappling industries for the for the rest of the year if IBJJF is closed. But um, yeah, I did. I applied for a couple. I'm ready to you know as soon as I get the call if it's within a you know a good enough time frame that I would take a match pretty much anywhere with anybody. All right, cool. I like that. You need more competitors like you that just want to compete. Some people are too stuck on a like, no, I don't want to fight there. I like that, like brand new. If you're a brand new black belt and you were like, I will fight, just get me a fight. Then I think that that is a really good sign. And uh, you mean this whole interview has been basically like you talking about really positive self improvement, just taking a head full of steam into your black belt. I think that's what it takes. You know what I mean? Some people get the. Uh, I'm afraid I know a lot of people <laughs> who they're going to take that black belt vacation. It's similar to the blue belt vacation, except for you don't quit. <laughs> you just take a vacation. Because um, yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time at Brown. I was a Brown belt for three full years. So mm-hmm. I guess to answer the past question, you know, did my time at the other belts prepare me? I would say so because I think, um, yeah, I guess I would say so just because I spent three years at Brown. And in the it's it is definitely a difference. Like in the beginning of Brown, I was ready to take any matches. I was going to good fights and new breeds in the area just for matches and then you know now the last year the tier was like we're going to europe we get to we, you know we can we usually do a a regional average jeff in the beginning but we're like nope we're skipping that because you know at this point i've double golded at like i think six or seven at least brown belt tournaments at the locals so then we went to europe and then the plan was to go to pans potentially brazil so it's definitely the, the end of the year belt uh, or the, the end of the road you know belt is different than the beginning so i mean now my approach is probably gonna be different you know when I, if i do win black world championships um and later on like the the you know like mikey doesn't compete as much as he used to just because it's like um you just have your different reasons so yeah for now it's just take any match that i can with a black belt around their waist and see where i'm at and then later the approach might be different but like i said two weeks into it and i've been competing for a long time pretty frequently i'll just take a match at any point with anybody and any gear no gear I prefer gi, yeah, but I would definitely take a nogi match for sure because I've won the individual championships, yeah, at uh, at Brown. So I definitely prefer gi, but again, a nogi match, gi match, either is fine. 
it's really cool to hear about like your mindset and it sounds like you had some some really good like coaches and like influences surrounding you like coming up in jujitsu so do you want to talk a little bit about like maybe from like a coaching perspective who your biggest influences were and then also like if there was maybe a competitor you like to watch coming up or anything like that yeah so um when i came up my the first coaches i met was um, John LaBruche, he got his black belt um, right after I did. And then um, Keith Sabula, they were the the kids coaches when I was coming up. So I met John first. John was, and I told him too, I was like, I really appreciate, you know, you because you were my first coach. You're the first person I saw on the mat and he kickstarted my love for it. Um, I met Keith a couple of times. Keith was always great. He's always positive, always excited to train. He always jokes to the kids that his favorite game is sparring. So instead of playing a game, he would always try to convince the kids to spar. So they were great. And then a couple of weeks in, I met Julius and Julius is the owner of Crazy 88. Um, and he really took me under his wing almost immediately. He was the one who um, pushed me into the adult classes. He was the one that helped my decision to leave the kids class completely and just go to the adult classes. So he's had a huge influence. He's helped me get sponsors. You know, he's planned out the tournaments. We've had a lot of talks about technique and game plan, you know, what the next plan is. Anytime I'd be sad after a tournament, if I took a loss that I know like I shouldn't have just because it was a close match, he'd be like, why are you upset? And just, you know, move on. Let's, let's move forward. So he has a huge influence over my career and um, what I've done. Then you have Ty Ryan Murphy. Um, like I have like Julius, I would say is my head coach, the main coach, my mentor, then the other black belts in the gym, like Ty's always around. Ty took us to the Nogi Worlds. Um, Ty's always so, you know, his students and his kids uh, oriented. So all the coaches here are very selfless and they, I was, um, I've been saying this, that I always say, and I always make a joke, but like, I always say that it takes a village to raise, you know, people say it takes a village to raise a kid. It takes a village to raise the world champion, in my opinion. So yeah. all the coaches that I had coming up, they, they played a huge, um, they played a huge role, you know, helping to raise me since I was still pretty young, being good influences. Um, so, and I, I like to, you know, they're all men. So in a, in a world where, you know, women aren't treated as well. Like I have a good group of men that, you know, treated me like their own and helped me come up and, you know, every one of them played a role and I definitely would not be as successful as I am without their influence and their help. I always like tell them I thank you as much as I can because I really appreciate all the things that they've done. And I know I wouldn't be at a, as a high level as I am without their help. They've, they've definitely been um, very good to me since I came in. Yeah, and I I know that those those guys are all good leaders without knowing them personally, just because of the quality of all the people that come out of that academy. Like we we talked to Malachi not too long ago, and I believe he has trained there a bit, and uh, and some of the other people that he mentioned. Like everyone is seems like they have a really strong mindset, and they they're very goal oriented, and you can just tell that the environment there is is very productive. Yeah, we trained with uh we were doing Sundays with Camp Spring, so Malachi and then like Jamil, Malachi and Angelo, they would come here. Sometimes we go there. Um, it's just a team atmosphere. We don't see them as much. Like I haven't seen them since the quarantine started, but I still keep in touch. Like I still talk to um, Malachi, Angelo, Jamil every once in a while, I'll check up on them. And we all, um, we talk in, um, yeah, we would train together. And it's always a good training environment. Like if I go, I used to go and ask like Jamil and Malachi questions about guard. Like I am really good at the punch choke now. And that's, you know, Malachi taught that to us one yeah. day. I experimented with the lasso a little bit. Jamil helped out with that. Um, and then I'm really close with Master Donnie, too. We run the kids programs at the gym. So I've taken a lot of advice and tips and stuff from him. Sometimes he'll call me for 45 minutes if I have a question. And I always think, oh, like, thanks for solving my problem that I couldn't solve myself. <laughs> and then every once in a while, Master Lloyd, you know, he just sends texts out to his um, students. Like he texts me, congrats on the black belt. And even like a week before that, he texts me about something. He was checking up on something. And we had a quick conversation. So um, they're like an affiliate gym and they're pretty far. We don't see them as often, but, you know. That it's it's such a good atmosphere and everyone is so close and so nice. Um, we all just want to see each other do well. And it's nice that the team is growing bigger and bigger so that we can share that with everybody else that comes in. Yeah, there's that old saying where it's like, you know, it's lonely at the top of the mountain. But it's not I, I don't like that saying because I think that it's not lonely if you bring people if people are helping you get there and then you guys all make the camp at the top you know you have like so many people and it's beautiful to hear and i feel like it's a consistent it has to be a consistent theme with many people who are great not just on the map but off the mat like you're not just being shaped as a competitor by the people that love you and care about you you're being shaped as a person and i think that if you're going to be a world champion on the mat and you're going to be a world champion in life you're going to be 
the same kind of leader, like you're a leader to children. And that's an incredibly difficult job, like we mentioned earlier, just because you have to invest yourself into other human beings' lives. You could easily be a selfish person and say, I don't need anybody and maybe still get to the top. But why do that when you can lead a life full of love and leadership like what you're doing now? It's very inspiring. And this is why we love having people like you on the show is because like, look at <laughs> how many people can learn from this example. How many people can try to better the environment around them and try to keep the cycle going? This is how the world gets better, baby. It's how the world gets better. <laughs> Open guard gas. Because, <laughs> yeah, um, well, you know, everything going on with the, the movements and the protests, I said. Yeah. Um, and the biggest thing is, like, people are asking over social media, what are you doing? How are you helping? And I was just like, I mean, my thing is, like, right now I'm just, like, I have my bookshelf back here. I'm reading different books to educate myself and um, I said, I'm leading a group of diverse kids. Like, it's not about what I'm doing now. It's about what I've been doing and what I'm going to keep doing. So, um, you know, the biggest thing is tolerance. And we teach tolerance to the kids. And we teach a lot of different, you know, the same life lessons that I learned here. You know, no excuses, always positivity, realistic, though, sometimes. And um, so that's that's my that's my contribution is that just any kid that comes in, you know, they remember the gym. I've had kids hit us up from years before and they say they remember the things that we taught them and they remember being here and just liking and loving being here. So, and it's definitely built a community, like the parents at the gym, they all bond, they have Facebook groups and they go out and the kids have sleepovers. So it's definitely a nice community where everyone is on the same page about tolerance and everyone's on the same page about um, respect and responsibility. And everyone kind of has the same mindset when it comes to training. And it's, it's really nice to see that community build over the last couple of years. Yeah. You're not just sewing the present, but you're sewing the future too. Absolutely. Because you're going to remember the examples that you set for them. That's the, that's the goal. Yeah, I think I think what Jake was saying, like leading by example is, pro is probably the biggest thing because I think kids are really in tune to like your actions r rather than just what you say. They kind of pay attention to what you do and they're going to mimic you more so than just follow everything that comes out of your mouth. Absolutely. Yeah, I always try to – I always make decisions as if they're watching just because – there's always that saying, don't send a text that you wouldn't want your grandmother to say. Well, I was like, I'm not going to do anything that, you know, if a kid saw me do it, they would either be upset by it or they would follow it and I wouldn't want them to follow it. So it's more, it's, you know, it's not just what they see you do, but just leading your life as if no one's watching, but you think that they are. So that's, that's the biggest thing when I make decisions. And, you know, when I, I'm on the mat, even the mat demeanor, if they are watching, I don't do a whole lot of celebrations. I don't make excuses. I don't get upset, win or lose. I just get off the mat, shake my opponent's hand, shake the ref's hand, and we get off. And then whatever happens, happens. So um, that's the biggest thing that I try to teach them, too, is just making decisions on the mat, off the mat, training, competition, at school, different things like that. All right. So you've been a, a kids, co kids coach, excuse me, for a while, and uh, I know you went to school and stuff like that too. But like, can you talk about some of the things that you were doing off the mat, like before you got your black belt, and like kind of how you balance everything off the mat, like your career, your professional aspirations with jujitsu. So, yeah. So before the quarantine, I, I'm still in school. I, I go to UMBC. Um, I'm there full time. And um, what I did for a while was I'm I've been in school for a while. Um, because I take a little bit less classes. So normally the class size you should take is five. I take maybe three. I usually try to take at least four. So I've made, I'm still full-time in school, but I've made that a little bit easier on myself. That way I can, you know, really put in the effort to those classes I take. Um, I like It works out with the kids' schedule. So like sometimes I go pick kids up from school and then I bring them here um, and then I teach and then I train. So for a while it was every day I was kind of just doing stuff all day. And so the biggest focus is um, clean eating, rest, recovery. I drink a lot of coffee, <laughs> but <Me too. laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, and just time management, prioritizing the time. Um, you know, every once in a while you get tired. So every once in a while, like if I need to, I take a day off. I understand the, I recognize the need to rest and recover every once in a while, take a day off, sleep in a little bit. Um, cause I'm not a robot, but yeah, I was school full time running the kids program and then trying to compete and train it was definitely a lot, but um, if you really want to do it, you'll do it. So for me, it's like I love doing everything that I even like, honestly, like school right now. I like teaching the kids program. I like competing. So for me, it's easier because I like everything that I'm doing. So it's easy to balance. You know, I have good time management and make sure I go to sleep on time. And um, the quarantine actually really helped a lot with rest because I took I think I took about just 10 days straight days off of teaching and like the Zoom classes. And I was uh, wasn't drilling for a while. So 
um, this helped with rest and recovery. And now we have a lot of different plans for the kids program. So yeah, but before it was time management, a lot of coffee, <laughs> trying to get sleep <laughs> when I can. And then just the fact that I like what I'm doing, it's a lot easier to go 16, 17, 18 hours in a row, you know, without breaking just because, and I also know the importance, like school is definitely the least favorite thing that I do, but I know the importance of it. Um, so it just takes a lot of grit and determination too, to just be able to do everything, but I survived. So I'm ready to get back into whenever everything open back, opens back up. Uh, what are you going to school for? My major is media and communication studies. Um, one, it's a lot easier than like different majors like law and science. So that, yeah. that helps. And I just like, um, you know, I'm a kid's coach and we talk, we communicate with a lot of people. So the major helps because media and communication um, the biggest takeaway that I learned from it was understanding, you know, how to read social media and analyze it, like how fake news happens and how people just follow blindly. So that's helpful. And then the communication aspect is just learning how to talk to people, learning how people function. So it's actually a really interesting major. Um, so, I mean, I guess I have to see what I can do with it later. But I also, like I said, I have my kids program around the summer camp. So um, financially, I'm OK. And then after school, I have time to obviously take on other work if I need to. But yeah, meeting communication studies is actually really fun and really interesting. Okay. So here's a question based off that. Kind of what Danny and I have done with this podcast is I don't I didn't go to college. I uh I kind of after high school I decided I didn't want to do anything but jujitsu and I and uh I've just kind of dived in, not really knowing how difficult it would be or what would happen. I kind of just dove in and I've had to immerse myself like that. But Danny uh did go to college. Uh like I said He's a, an established man. He's 31. <laughs> so, um, adulting. Uh, right. He's adulting and I'm learning <laughs> how to. So do you have any plans to tie in what you learn in this media and communications major? Do you have any plans to tie that into jujitsu? Sort of, I mean, like kind of Danny and I with this podcast are tying together like a media source into our passion for jujitsu. Do you have any plans to do that? Um, definitely. So, I mean, learning to, promote myself as an athlete the I'm just I just I just started the major so I did one semester where it was the very basic classes but I could already see how it was going to help me so um we delved into how humans communicate and how you can reach somebody you know like you can say something 10 times and someone will understand it you either have to say it in a certain way or you got to say it at even at just a certain time you know if someone's tired they're not going to listen to you so it's is there's a lot of different things that we went through so not only will I obviously tie it into promoting myself as an athlete, learning how to compete, uh, communicate with the kids and the parents better. Um, but I know that there's a lot of demand even for like media, social media experts or so, social media coordinators when, you know, different businesses need that because promoting yourself now on social media, I think is more powerful than TV ads and newspaper ads, how they used to be. So there's definitely room for that, but, and even just marketing the things that we already do. So marketing our kids program and, um, getting the word out and even just the summer camp, which um, is nice because those are money makers. When I do get out of college, I'll probably end up getting some sort of part time job. I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I mean, I'm kind of just figuring it out as I go. But I'm sure, you know, I can do something, do something with it. But for sure, as far as the jitsu, just getting the word out, learning how to communicate with people better and then promoting myself as an athlete. That way I can get the recognition that, um, you know, that you guys are trying to help me get, which is super nice. So I have kind of a two-part follow-up question, and uh, I thought it was really interesting how you talked about studying social media and like how we communicate. And I feel like in today's world, it's it's kind of like a necessary thing, especially in like a niche sport like jujitsu. You have to be able to promote yourself. Um, at least that's my opinion. So first first part of the question is, do you agree with that? Do you think that there's kind of a need for athletes in jujitsu to get onto social media and kind of tell their story? And my second part of the question is. Do you feel like it's hard to do that being someone who's like really humble like yourself, like people who are more brash and who like to, you know, talk a little bit of crap. It's it's pretty easy for them to just get on social media and just write whatever they think. But you're a kid's coach. You're setting an example to to kids and, you know, you're, you're trying to portray a really good image with like good morals and good values. So is that an additional challenge of like trying to promote yourself to you? Yeah, I think with the media, it's kind of a dumb double-edged sword so while people are getting recognition they're getting sponsorships fight opportunities and you know the money comes into it it's also you see athletes break under the pressure of media yeah. like um i mean i like flow grappling but i know like when a lot of athletes are on there they start to feel this pressure like i have to win 
and you know, they're they're I think what they're doing is smart because and even Flow Wrestling, I follow both of them. Um, and Flow Wrestling's big thing when they did their last tournament before the quarantine was they anytime like someone lost, they always called it an upset. And of course that brings more eyes to it. They're like, what's an upset? But I mean that stuff affects athletes a lot. So I'm trying to find the balance between promoting myself and not getting a little too much attention that I don't think personally myself that I would break because um, I mean, I, I'm already aware of that. So I'm aware that athletes can break under the pressure of social media and people thinking that they're invincible. Um, but I do think it's important for athletes to tell their story because it does inspire people who wouldn't normally do the sport of jiu-jitsu because jiu-jitsu is one of the only sports that you can start as an adult and succeed um, and you can keep doing it. Like we have master's divisions. So um, I guess it's like that weird balance between telling your story and trying to inspire others, but also getting attention, you know, for sponsorships and for match opportunities, but then just making sure that it's not breaking you and it's not affecting you. But yeah, it's definitely harder just because I'm not the one to talk trash and I love all my opponents. Anytime I fight anybody, whether I beat them or they beat me, I like reaching out and seeing how they're like, I follow almost probably almost every girl that I fought, I follow on my Instagram and we, you know, we'll talk every once in a while. Like I'll put up funny stories and they reply to it. I reply to theirs. So it's a nice community, but yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm not the one that's going to talk trash and start that. I just, I don't see any need for it, even though, you know, some people do it well, they, they get attention for it and that's what they want to do. But yeah, it's just, I guess it's just that balance where, um, I made the joke to somebody where I was like, I want to be famous, but Jiu-Jitsu famous is good enough. Like I don't want too much attention <laughs> where I go out on the streets and I'm like bombarded by paparazzi, but you know, being Jiu-Jitsu famous is cool because you have that small community that knows you, but it's not everybody. So um, yeah, the media is a tricky thing. It's just finding that balance as an athlete, how much attention you want. Sometimes you can't control how much attention you get, but, you know, being able to be strong enough to handle it if it's too much. I think, I think you take a certain release of your e- – like, not just a certain, a big release of your ego. I feel like there's so many things in the world that will build the person's ego. It could be anything. It could be you being good, like the best in your class at something. All of a sudden, pew, ego spike um, and like at like elementary school. And there's so many things in the world, and the, your ego is such a dangerous thing. I think um, I totally agree. By the way, uh, there has been. I, I, what's nice is like being the underdog for every fight ever is super easy because no one expects you to win, yeah, and when you do, win. it's always like yay. But uh, <laughs> but I see what you're saying. Like athletes, like um, like Gordon, who's a fantastic competitor in person. He's I've heard he's a super awesome dude. The dude, I mean, like he can talk all the smack he wants. He hasn't lost yet. Uh, but like, imagine when he does, you know what I mean? Cause he's gonna eventually, or he'll retire and never fight again. Uh, but if he competes on competing, somebody's going to beat him one day. And then when that happens, it's like all the time he spent talking trash. Now it's a problem. But with an athlete like you, who's respectful and cares about the community and cares about making a difference, because I think that, you know, you acting positive with people in your community, you actively trying to like, not even trying, just being yourself really, um and being friendly and kind and showing love which really is what it is you you lose people are like oh well they want to see you win and your opponents are not going to be upset people are not going to be like oh i hope she loses because why would they say that they're the idiot you're a nice person like i can see people saying you know i hope gordon loses because it's like okay yeah he definitely talked a lot he talked really bad about this person i could see why you would want that um, so you're pretty, you're covering all your bases and your competitive career is probably going to be so much more, not probably, I imagine it will be more, um, what's the word? It will bear more fruit in the end because you're going to be, you're going to have set yourself up for much success on and off the mat. Would that yeah, resonate okay. with you, Danny and, uh, Vanessa? Yeah. Like I, um, like the, 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 the athletes I look up to, like I like Lucas Supri, super humble guy. Um, he's actually probably my favorite competitor. Um, then you look at Mikey. Mikey's always positive. A- anytime anyone tries to talk trash to him, he just shuts it down. He's like, he's just, he literally goes on Instagram and is like, why are you doing this? Like, he's just, <laughs> you can't say anything to Mikey. Why? So I feel like Mikey, I like Lucas. I like, um, I mean, I have a lot of competitors. Like, like I like Marigali. I don't really know what his internet presence is. I don't think there's a whole lot, but I tend to gravitate towards the more humble athletes that I relate to. Um, I mean, I don't have anything against Gordon. I don't really know the guy, so I'm not going to hate him because of social media like so many people do. But, um, you know, he's not the type of athlete that um, as far as personality that I want to be, he's very good. So obviously, if I can get as good as Gordon, that would be great. But I definitely 
um, look up to the ones that I know are more humble just because that's how I want to be. You know, Mikey's a good example. You know, he's he messaged Joao Miao or Paulo, happy Thanksgiving. And it's such a simple thing, but it's something that people normally wouldn't do. And that's something that I do. Like I go on my Instagram and the competitors I'm closest to, I'll wish them happy birthday or, you know, happy holiday. So I just think, you know, the, obviously media, you get more attention if you're crazier and you have something that stands out. But I like the athletes personally for me that are almost quieter, but they're still good because they know how to, they, they, they have the level said they know how to handle their fame and they know how to be good without showing off their ego too much. Yeah. I think Metagali, the exact quote was um, not the exact quote, but pretty close was I am the best athlete. I am the, the best technique and the best trash talk also most handsome. So he's, he's pretty funny. I think he doesn't talk trash unless it's Herbert. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Danny, are you there? Danny, did we lose him? Oh no, he's frozen. Danny's frozen. <laughs> All right, uh, <laughs> that is not that has not happened. This is unprecedented material. All right, uh, he, I think his uh, computer is <laughs> acting up because we interviewed Jordan Peitzman and the a similar thing happened. But I will keep on. Oh, oh he's, he's back. back. Yeah. Danny O'Donnell. He's looking around. Back. You are Danny? back. All right. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. Sorry. <laughs> I was he in the middle of like, a question too, and then you're like, "Danny, are you there?" I was like, "I think so." <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna sound weird on the broadcast, probably. It's funny. So my question was, uh, you mentioned that one of your big goals is to win the worlds as a black belt multiple times. Um, you're definitely like on the right path with that, like winning it at, at blue and purple and stuff. But it seems like you're you're kind of planting the seeds to be able to to run a successful academy one day if you wanted to too. Is that something that you are thinking about now, or is that something that's just kind of off in the distant future? Yeah, that actually no. Everyone always asks me, and I'm like specifically no, just because. There's, I think there's a lot when people open an academy, I think it's easier than it is. But like I said, Julius is took me under his wing. He's my mentor. And some of the stuff that he has to deal with and like the administrative staff has to deal with. I'm like, I'm not the person for that. I'm not confrontational. So, you know, you got to deal with people who aren't going to pay their bills on time, who are going to yeah. have a problem. And I'm like, I'm good enough just running a kid's program. Like Master Donnie's the same way. He's just running his kid's program. I'm like, I just... I'll just run my kids program, my summer camp. I can work at any gym, but I'm not going to be the one to run the whole gym just because I know what it entails. I mean, um, it's not impossible for me. It's not like I absolutely won't do it. Um, I would consider it. But as of right now, if, you know, if I can just be a kids coach and a summer camp director and do that and just deal with the kids, that's the goal. But, you know, if the opportunity arose and it was a, a decent one, I don't think I would turn it down. But like I said, if, if I could just stay in kind of like my small bubble and my um, the thing that I'm good at, just running the kids and dealing with the, you know, the issues and stuff that comes with running the kids program in the summer camp, that's kind of the goal for me. Yeah, not dealing with parents, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. I want to have kids of my own one day, but man, if I turn out, if I act like I've seen some parents act. And I'm not going to name names because I love my kids. Please I love don't. My kids program. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to. I'm don't, not going to. <laughs> but you know what i'm talking about because i've oh, yeah. seen some parents yeah. act like when you're a parent you love your kid you act you uh all of a sudden human behavior takes a whole new form you can because you man you love your kids so you think like certain thoughts certain extreme thoughts that drive parents like do you think i'm not good at my job anyway uh <laughs> I, mean, I empathize because if you think about it i mean yeah it's your kid you created this thing and also with the um the big the only like the most consistent thing that I have is the parent is only watching their kid when the practice yeah. is so which obviously you wouldn't like watch all the kids it's weird so they're paying attention to their kids so like if a, even a parent experienced or not experienced is going to notice more issues with the kid than I would if I'm watching twenty or thirty kids um so I think most I mean most of the issues are when they come to me they're like oh little Johnny's not doing his takedown right. And I'm like, okay, well, the takedown unit is next. Like, we'll get to it. And they're like, no, I want him to do it now. And I'm like, all right, well, just relax. Like, it's okay. We're going to get to it. I think I think that's the biggest thing with parents is that they want, a lot of them want the kid to be so good and so good so fast, but they don't understand it. It's just a process, especially jujitsu. It's not like karate where, you know, your kid, a kid can get a black belt and be at the highest level before they can drive a car. It definitely, it takes time. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I try to tell the parents is it just takes time. Like a kid can go and lose every match of the tournament. It's not, 
I mean, obviously they don't want to, but it's not the end of the world. And I know that's upsetting to parents because they paid the money, they went out there, they had to watch their kid lose and potentially cry. And, you know, the attention is on theirs. So it's just a different dynamic. The parents' attention is on their kids or kid. My attention is on just the whole program as a whole. So um, just, I, but I try to, you know, anytime there's a complaint or anything, I try to understand both sides and form the solution or the answer to that. But yeah, I mean, I get, I get why the parents are the way they are. It's just, you know, we butt heads every once in a while. So it's pretty natural when it comes to running anything that has to do with kids. Yeah. And you're right on the administrative side of running a, an academy. I'm learning a lot from my professor right now about like what it entails to be a. Because at the end of the day, you're not just running a jujitsu school. When you know jujitsu, you think I can teach jujitsu. But then like being a business owner is it transcends so what you do. Yeah. Like you could be you could own a personal training gym if you own a business. Like it doesn't matter. Everything else is all just consequential of your ability to run that business. Like okay, you're doing jujitsu inside of your business. You're still running this business. And I'm learning all that, and it's like. Pfft, blowing my mind because i'm like i'm not smart enough for this like i i could do a bird and bull but it took me 10 years <laughs> it took me 10 years to learn a bird and bull you think i'm gonna be able to manage my finances like i can't i can't even invert properly my neck like, hurts. yeah my boss is like oh we gotta do our taxes pay our rent we have to get these permits i'm like can i, I what i don't what, what is <laughs> can you do that <laughs> yeah we, we have like our quarterly meetings or our staff meetings and anytime an administrator problem comes out i'm just lost i'm just i i just zone off i try to learn and listen of course because you always want to know what's going on with the business which that's a good thing that my that, that's one thing my boss does really well too is i mean he does a bunch of things great but he always keeps all the employees informed about pretty much everything you know his logic is if the business is going out of business you guys should know ahead of time so maybe there's something that we can do to improve um but yeah when the administrative stuff comes up and like the, we talk about money and taxes and permits and rules and i'm just i'm always lost i never have any idea what's happening i think it's it's really cool that you actually have that foresight to see that there's a there's a difference between just being a good instructor and running a successful academy <laughs> cuz i think like jake said a lot of people don't think about that absolutely oh yeah oh yeah well i was in an academy power mma just put things in perspective power mma was this gigantic gold's gym sized academy that was run by four MMA fighters. And these four oh, MMA fighters okay. were established, right? Like they're Ryan Bader, C.B. Dalloway, Aaron Simpson. And now they're running this academy. And then all of a sudden, like a couple, I don't know, maybe maybe four or something years. I'm not, I'm not really sure on the exact number, but <laughs> the, the gym just falls apart. And they, they say, hey, you guys got a week to find a new gym. And I'm like, we're like, wait, what? Because we're the Jiu-Jitsu Academy inside this MMA gym. We're keeping it afloat. And this is the first inkling I ever had at, wow, how do you run a business? Don't do what they did. And basically, we had a week <laughs> to find a new place. We had to move into a warehouse, like a, uh, an abandoned like warehouse that was going to turn into a medical practice and just put down mats inside of this wooden room. It literally was a sauna in the Arizona summer. And then we finally got our own academy. And now me and my professor run it and run the business. And it's like, man, we – they they thought that they could supplement. It was like thirty six thousand dollars a month in rent or something like that. Like, man, you can't pay that with just a jujitsu program. Are you crazy? Because every other program sucked. Like, they didn't suck. I apologize. They didn't suck. They had very very low numbers and poor marketing. So they didn't suck. What sucked was the circumstance that they were fall that they fell under because they weren't able to market themselves pro properly because the management wasn't doing their job. So it's like. The whole thing crumbled, and then we were the only things that survived because we had enough students. Yeah, very Julius scary. is very smart. The things that he comes up with and all, like, he's he's big on keeping numbers. So when I go to the kids' tournaments, um, I actually have spreadsheets, and I, I have every single result from the kids' tournaments from, like, probably for three years. And we actually went through and we compounded the numbers, and, and it's good to know, like, if you're improving, if you're not, if you're staying stable, like, can you improve, can you not? That's so – you know, he runs all the complicated stuff in the back end, and I'm just like, that's all you. And so I run anything he tells me to do. We do, um, we do like what's called, um, we do just a reflection. So any event we run, we run, we write a reflection on it, and then we, anytime we run the same event, we pull that out. What can we do better? Um, that's the best thing about working here is that as an employee, you're forced to just improve and do as well as you can, but you also have the boundary to be like, all right, I need to pull back a little bit. I need. Um, some, I need like to, I need to relax. I can't put any more into this right now. I'm going to try. So I mean, working here is great because he's super smart. He covers a lot of the bases and 
the gym is doing very well right now. I mean, we survived through the quarantine with flying colors, in my opinion, just because of his leadership. And, um, you know, on our side, we're running things. And his biggest thing was be proactive during the quarantine. So we started running Zoom classes for the kids and we started running outdoor sessions to keep the community close because three months is a long time. We've, we just started to be able to open up this week. So, you know, all the things that he thinks of, like he has the bases covered and I just kind of like, I'm like, yep, you want me to do this? I got it. I'll, I'll run this part and you guys do all the, the, the complicated stuff. <laughs> Makes me happy to know That's the awesome. future's in good hands. Yeah. I like, I like, I love hearing about passionate coaches doing like taking the initiative because there's a lot of coaches that like, you know, and this is just old school thinking like there was no like curriculum or there was no, Hey, let's write notes and improve. It was always just like, ah, oh, what do I feel like teaching today? Hmm. Yep. I sure have a long, complicated curriculum too. <laughs> Less I, yeah. everything's, everything's on paper. Me too. And I, I love hearing that. So we're uh, we're coming up on almost an hour. We really really appreciate your time. I said one more question for you. Um, so what advice would you give to someone who's maybe like 13, 14, 15, that age range where they've fallen in love with jujitsu and they want to be a black belt world champion? So like jujitsu advice and then also like leadership advice because I feel like you have a lot of insight into that as well. Yeah. So uh, when the kids come in, the, the the biggest thing, the most important thing is stay consistent and be patient. Um, I see a lot of kids get frustrated and frustrated frustration is natural, but you know, you have to learn how to handle it. So consistency and staying patient, you know, knowing your time is coming. And then, um, at the end of class, we let the black belts talk. And every time I say, just train with a purpose, because you can be on the mats for nine years and only be, you know, high white belt, low blue belt level if you didn't train with a purpose. So staying consistent, be patient with yourself and then train with a purpose. And as far as the leadership goes, just know have that balance between being able to take instructions and knowing when to ask, you know, why you're doing something or, and knowing when you're, you know, you can say no, or you feel like something is wrong. So being a good follower is the first step to being a good leader. So again, stay patient, stay consistent, always train with a purpose, listen to your coaches. If there's something that seems wrong, don't hesitate to ask, but ask politely so that you have a better understanding of why you're being asked to do what you're doing, you know, always being respectful, never being rude. That's, that's just the starting point, you know. I, I like to keep things simple. So with the kids, it's just always again patience, patience, consistency, train with a purpose, have a open ears, always listen, and then pretty much it. It's pretty simple, honestly. It just takes a lot of you know time put in and um, determination and grit. And not everyone has it, but if you do, so it would be a shame, you know, to have a white belt that could be a black world champion and just quit just because they weren't, you know, they didn't get good advice. They didn't have any good coaching. Definitely. That's awesome advice. We really, again, really appreciate you coming on and uh, congrats again on your black belt. You know, Thank your you. brand new black belt. Yeah. Uh, you're definitely a breath of fresh air coming onto the black belt scene. Um, I definitely, uh, I'm already a fan. Everybody that comes on the show, I become a fan, but I'm definitely going to be looking out and um, rooting for you. Uh it's going to be nice to see because we need more champions like you. You know what I mean? We need people who are, who are trying to push the future. So, um, is there anybody you want to shout out? I think that's what Danny was going to ask, I hope. Yes. It's okay, cool. That's what I was going to ask. You know, TLI, I, TLI and Crazy D, you know, we have um, a bit of a negative reputation, but I think that it's starting to build up as people get to know us. And, you know, we people start to put like a face behind who, who we are and, what we represent. So um, I would just shout out all of my team, Crazy88 down at uh, TLI, down at Camp Springs. You know, they're, that whole community is just the reason that I am where I am. So love you guys. Shout out to them. Man, that's a sick T-shirt you're wearing. Oh, yeah. I got it, I got it yesterday. Boy, oh, yeah. My, my sponsor. <laughs> that was like a really nice way of me reminding you. Moya <laughs> Brand, yeah. Jesse Moya, he's been so supportive of me. Um, just the, the entire time. He's another one who always checks up on me, um, sends me random texts, emails, always checks up, is always excited when I um, succeed. And, you know, he's been great. All the all my kids were Moya. Um, he just sent me a nice care package. So he's a great support system as well. All righty. That's awesome. We uh, here at the Open Guardcast want to shout out <laughs> Electrum Performance. <laughs> Open Guardcast 25 is our discount code. If you weren't doing your sets of squats during this entire episode, this last hour, you better have been gradually increasing progressive overload. Whiteboard Wednesdays. Uh, <laughs> 
by Alex Bryce. You better be following that and doing your set because we wanted to see you get ripped. That was horrible. I did it again. Uh, we want to shout <laughs> out the confidence. The confidence is in here. Trust me. <laughs> but I, we're working on this. All right. Jake Watson is washed up competitor turned commentator. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. No, um, yeah, Electric Performance discount code OpenGuardCast25. We want to shout out High Tier Photography, Chill Fit Cryo, Break New Ground, Marcio Andre Jiu Jitsu, Matakaba BJJ. And don't forget that we are the official commentary team of BJJ Woodstock, August 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. We are taking the mics and we are going to just bring you the best airwave content you could possibly imagine. You're going to hear Danny O'Donnell's sultry tones the entire <laughs> event. How do you feel about that? Let us know on Instagram. <laughs> but uh, Vanessa, thank you so much. We're huge fans. Um, and you're definitely, like I said, you're a breath, of, a breath of fresh air. And we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming on. It was Thanks a real pleasure. Me. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Danny O'Donnell, not the Irish singer, but the black belt. Oh, by the way, Danny got his black belt earlier uh, as well. So I'm talking to two new black belts. I'm looking at the future. Uh, well, more the present and the future. We're looking at the present <laughs> and the future. Vanessa I'm Griffin. That's I'm, I'm in the past. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Danny, why don't you take us out of here? All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This was episode 30 of the Open Guard Cast with new black belt Vanessa Griffin uh, from Crazy 88 Jiu-Jitsu. So thanks again. Hope to get you uh, another episode in about a few days. Thanks.